This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Well, 1 John chapter 3. And, uh, I really hope that we're ready. I mean, I, that your heart is prepared to connect with um, what we're about to look at in 1 John 3 today. If, if you remember, when we began this study... And we, and we discussed the background of John and what was happening in the early church during the, the time when John was writing this. As I mentioned, John is the last living apostle, and so he's close to, about, close to 100 years old, and his time on earth is about done. He's the only apostle that wasn't martyred, and he's pastoring the church at the end of the first century, preparing it for the next generation and then the generations to come, the one that we would eventually be part of today. And so he writes this letter with us in mind, not only the people of his time in mind, but with us in mind as well. But he's recognizing that the church then, as well as now, is always going to be faced with the issue of people attempting to pervert the teaching of what Christianity is about. And he knows the power of who and what God's people are as the church. He knows the power of who we are is founded in the truth of who God is. And so he begins his letter by reminding us of the truth of who God is. And, he, and he's encouraging the church to just really rest in the power of that, rest in the power of God and walk in his truth. And he does this by comparing uh, the, the, the struggle that we have uh, to things like light and darkness and lawlessness and righteousness. And he says that God is light and that light isn't something that you can just fabricate on your own. You can't just fabricate it through religiosity in your own life. But light is something that God brings into our lives. God does it. And he does that as we surrender more and more to him, we, more, we walk more in the light. And John uses this metaphor of light and darkness early on. And then he talks about the idea of righteousness and worldliness. And last week we talked about the world and this idea of worldliness as we think about it in context of scripture is the entire system of belief and behavior that is in rebellion to God. We talked about that last week. So a love for the world will crowd out your love for God. But the opposite of that, conversely, the love a love for God will crowd out love for the world. And so the, re the way to remove worldliness from your life is not to try harder, not to set up more rules for your life or yourself and to try to behave more righteously, but, but, by, but the way to remove the world from your life is by simply yielding more and more to the love and to the knowledge of Christ. And so that brings us to where we are today. And what John's going to do is he's going to take all of these thoughts. And he's going to show us what is central to the idea of light and righteousness. And he talks in early in chapter three about what it means to be a, a child of God and, 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 and um, excuse me, uh, being God's children and being, being born uh, of, of God's family. And we're actually going to pick up later in chapter three, we're going to pick up in verse uh, 10 and read and, and, and John 1 John 3.10 is, is where he sort of starts this, this really incredible um, 
this really incredible unpacking of, of these examples of what it means to live as children of God and what it means to what it should look like in the world. We found at the end of chapter 2, verse 28, he says that he wants all of us to have confidence in something, right? He wants us to have confidence and assurance bef before God at his appearing on the last day. One day, all of us are going to meet God face to face. And John says that on that day, he wants you to be able to be confident. He wants you to be able to stand before him with an assurance that you belong there, right? So in 1 John 2, 28, and then later in 1 John 4, 17, we're not there yet, but he talks about this confidence before that day of judgment or before God's presence when we meet him face to face on that day, uh, that final day. So in the context of this thought, now John is going to tell us what that would look like here and now to live in that kind of confidence, what that actually looks like. How can you make sure that you have this confidence? And so in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, he starts with this idea and he says this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are not, who are the children of the devil. So it is evident by this who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So in case you need to know, you want to be one of those children and you and not the other one, right? So if you if you haven't thought about that, there is only one. There's only one option. It's one of the. It's one or the other, and you want to be one of those, but not the other one. So here's the difference. Here's how you know you are one, the the one and not the other. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So because of Jesus's righteousness that's placed on us. So we, we, don't, we don't have that, the capability of, of earning righteousness or creating it in our own lives. So Jesus gives, gives us his righteousness more and more as we yield to him more and more. That's a gift that God gives us. Well, how you know that you're living in that John says that there is a way to know if you're living in that or not. There are specific ways. And one way that he just brings up right away in his letter is, hey, here's one way. You love your brother, right? So God's desire then is for us to live in light of the righteousness that he has given to us. And we live that out in this world, right? So in this world that we are not to love, but, it, but we're living in this world, there is a way to live that shows that we have the righteousness of Christ. So what this means is that the righteousness of Christ, it's not something that you can fabricate yourself with a bunch of religious rules. And, and, it, and that is absolutely true. But, but it is also true that the righteousness of Christ, which is Christ, which is given to you by grace, it is something that ought to be visible and clear and made known in this world in how you live and how you relate to other people. John is talking about here very specifically, um, he's talking about something that, that he's fighting against in the early church. So we have to kind of go back there and think about that because that is the original context in which he's writing. And so if we remember, there are people in the early church that claim to follow Jesus, but they look like the world. And when you claim to follow Jesus, you should look like Jesus. You should not look like the world and not just everyone else. So what's happening in the period of time in which John is writing is that there's this form of teaching called Gnosticism. If you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks, I'll just summarize it really quickly. Um, Gnosticism believed that the physical 
the physical was bad and the spiritual was good. So everything about the physical was bad. So it didn't really matter what you did in the physical because that's not where anything happened anyway. The only thing you need to focus on is, is the spiritual. The spiritual was good. And so they only talked about Jesus ever being a spiritual being, never really appearing in the flesh, which was which is actually a heretical teaching. It's not. It's it's just not true. But then, but they started to teach this idea, branching off of that concept and that understanding, is that it didn't matter what you did in the flesh. So they just really downplayed what we did as we lived every single day in this world and in in, in in our bodies. But we should just think about what is happening in our spirit. And so that's the only thing that matters, right? So, so you live each day, however you want physically, but it doesn't matter. You know, that doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is what's happening to you inside of you spiritually. And uh, Paul actually deals with this a little bit in Romans. The apostle Paul deals with it in Romans where he talks about how, yes, the, the work that Christ is doing in us is, is a, is a gift of grace, but that does not mean that we just go on sinning as we live in this life because so that grace may abound even more in a, in a spiritual sense. Uh, and, and, and so what, what John is, is battling is this idea, and he describes it this way. He says, look, whoever does not practice righteousness, right? So it's not just something that's happening, that, that's just given to you. It's a practice. It's something that we have to practice. And if we don't practice it, he actually says, we're not of God. And he's saying God is not behind what a person is doing if they're not practicing righteousness. Yeah, I, I think this verse, I, I really think, you know, one thing that we have to understand is I believe that John's writing his letter to Christians. I believe he's writing his letter to the church. And we got to be really careful because sometimes we want to apply everything that is written to the church to Christians. We try to, 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 to kind of assume that that it's our right to say that we that everybody else needs to 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 be to hear this as well, and not everybody adheres to this. Not everybody knows or understands. I think he's writing this directly to Christians because because he, he, what's he say? How do we know that he's writing to Christians? Because he uses that word brother. He says, "Nor is the one who does not love his brother." So this idea of loving your brother in Christ is the idea of what it means to be a believer in the Lord. That's what it looks like in the world. But he's saying, look. If this person who belongs to Jesus, who says they belong to Jesus, is not practicing righteousness or demonstrating Jesus in the world, then God's not behind that. God's not with that. God's not in that. And so what John is clarifying is this confusion that sometimes arises that the world will often see people who claim to follow Jesus, but they don't look anything like Jesus. That there's 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 got to be a there's got to be some correlation between what we say, what we type, and what we wear, and what we I mean to, to how we actually behave, how we actually interact with people, right? We because we what Jesus is supposed to radically transform life. He's supposed to radically transform your life. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So let's go on. Verse eleven. He says this. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. So this is the basis, right? This, this is our, our basis for following Christ. This is, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. This is the foundation. What's he say? That we should love one another. That we should love one another. What John is wanting us to recognize is that our relationship with God, spiritually speaking, is interconnected with your relationship to others. So your relationship with God, what you have, the, the relationship that you have with God is inextricably connected 
to your relationship that you have with other people, people that you actually interact with on a daily basis. And in essence, what he's saying is the way you love God is demonstrated in the way you care about the people around you. If you want to know how much a person loves God, look at how they care about the people around them. If you love God, then you'll you'll love the things that God loves and you'll love and, and you'll love what God loves and what God loves is people. Because God came to give his life for people. And so your relationship with God is is not distinct or separate from your relationship with other people. Rather, it's so interconnected that John says, this is how you know. This is how we know, right? That, that your, your relationship you know, with, with others is the, the demonstration of what, it mean, of, of what your relationship with God looks like. Relationships reveal your spiritual health. That's how important these relationships that we have with people are because they're not always easy. I mean, adversity comes, and, and it doesn't. We don't. We don't. We don't feel like loving sometimes, and and it's hard. And so it's in those moments we find out truly what our relationship with God is really like. You ever consider that? You ever consider that your relationship with God is so connected with your relationship with others that when things happen in your relationship with others, and the way you respond to those is actually revealing something about your relationship with God. So when you look at verse 11 and you read this verse and you're like, okay, I, I can see that, right? I can, I, I can see that. Here, here, let's continue what he says. Um, we, sorry, I got lost there for a second. The rain is like distracting me. It's pouring down rain and I, and I keep seeing it and hearing it and there's something about rain. It's, I don't know, it's refreshing, I guess. So he says, right, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another, right? And you were like, I agree with this verse, right? And John has reiterated this throughout his, his, other, his gospel, right? And if you go back to verse 10, he's attaching this word, you know, this word righteousness. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He's attaching righteousness to love, right? He's taking this word righteousness and he's saying, you know what righteousness looks like? Here's what right, I mean, like, you ever wonder, I think we have a lot of ideas of what righteousness looks like, but have you ever thought about the fact that righteousness is connected to love? John connects these two words. Righteousness looks like loving people, loving people. Now, I, I would guess, I would guess that most of us look at this again and say, yeah, I agree with this, right? We, we, should, we should love one another. Right, we should, that's 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 pretty obvious. I mean, the Bible says that's the greatest commandment. We ought to love love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know that we we, we ought to do that. So here's the question: Do we do that? <laughs> do we love in this way? Right? I mean, when we think in terms of love, I think John's about to give us a couple of examples that we are able to examine with our own lives here, because I think for the most part, when you meet people in this world. And most people will say, yeah, I'm a loving, I feel like I'm a loving person. I feel like I love, right? I feel like I love people. But John wants us to, to, John wants us to really see in these verses what it really looks like, what it really should look like in our lives to really truly be a person of love the way Christ loves people. When we emanate the kind of love that Christ has, it, it should look like something, right? Because here's the thing, there is a natural worldly kind of love that is easy for people to see and understand, well, sort of, I guess, 
people, I think people define love in the world. I mean, there is, there is worldly love. We know that. there's love in the world, right? I mean, there's a way to love in the world, but it's, it's a natural way. But then there's a, a, a supernatural love, which is a way that only God can love. And he has loved you that way. And when you recognize the love that God has lo- with which God has loved you, then, then you are able to love others in the same way. And that's, a, that's not something that's going to come natural to you. It's a supernatural thing. So when God calls us to love, God is calling us not to treat people the way people treat us. That's, 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 everybody does that, right? That's, I mean, yeah, if I, if I, I'm going to treat you the way you treat me. That's, and that's, that's love. When he calls us to love, he calls us to treat people the way Jesus treats us. And to do that, it, it requires a supernatural kind of love. It requires something that goes against our natural instinct as people. And John is recognizing this is the kind of love that, that God has, that he has put into, into believers, right? And so he starts this example with a sort of a weird thought, right? I mean, if you, if you read this verse and you're disconnected from what John is saying here, what he's talking about, you might feel like this is a little extreme <laughs> because what he says is this, beginning with verse 12. So unlike Cain, so we should not be like Cain, right? Who was of the evil one and he murdered his brother. It's like he immediately jumps, John immediately jumps to like murder. I mean, like, like, like if you don't love your brother, you're not living in righteousness. For example, you know, don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. <laughs> and, and it's like, that's a little extreme. I like right off the bat, he just goes, he goes to, straight to murder. Right. And so let's, let's continue reading. And why did he murder him? Here's why. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Okay. So you're like, all right, I've never murdered anyone. So I'm okay here. Right. And so how do we relate to this thought? How do you read this, this scripture and, and go, yeah, I can relate to that. Well, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel were the first two kids that were born into this world from Adam and Eve. And uh, scripture talks about in Genesis 4, Adam and Eve, and well, at least the first two kids that are talked about. I mean, I guess we're not certain that they were the exact first two kids, but they have, they have Seth and Cain and Abel. And, and, and Adam and Eve are sort of, these are the, this is the first family. And so Cain and then Abel both come to give offerings before the Lord. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 4 that, that Cain gives an offering before God, then Abel gives, gives an, Abel gives an offering before God. And it's described that, that Abel's offering, um, he, you know, he takes the, the first fruit. So he takes like the first of his, of his, the first and best of his, of his crops. And he, he offers that to God. And so he, it's sort of symbolic of giving God the first of our, of, of, of everything. And, and then Cain gives his offering. Well, God accepts Abel's offering, but he doesn't accept Cain's offering. And it becomes a, a picture for the rest of, the, of time of what it means to, to give a sacrifice to God and what God desires. And so rather than deal with that, Cain, rather than deal with that before God, Cain just gets mad. He just, and he decides to deal with it with his brother and, uh, and he, and he blames his brother and, and cause he felt like his, his brother made him look bad in God's eyes. If you hadn't done that, then, then I wouldn't look bad in God's eyes. And so he gets frustrated and he takes it out on, on, uh, on, on Abel and he kills him, takes his anger out on him and he kills him. Right. And the Bible tells us why he did that. 
and it, and the reason and it says because of what was in his heart, what was what he was interested in most, and what he was interested in most, quite honestly, was himself. And what that leads to in the story of Cain and Abel is it, it leads to you know what being interested in yourself it leads to this jealousy and this 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 envy. Um, uh, and that where, where Cain sort of covets the acceptance that his brother has that he doesn't have, and he wants to look good, and he doesn't look good, and so he kills his brother. He murders him. And so as you hear this example, you think about this example, and you think, wow, this is kind of silly to talk about love like this because no one's going to do that, right? I mean, just to start right off the bat like by saying, if I don't love my brother, it's like, you know, don't, don't be like that. Well, I'm not going that extreme. I'm not going to do that, Right. It's, you know, we probably, most of us are like, I don't feel like a murderer, right? I mean, that's, we probably all feel like that. You probably don't know how to relate to this. But let's give, let's think about where John might be going with this because he does unpack it further here as we, as we continue. I think first and foremost, one of the similarities that we have here with Cain is what led Cain to do what he did? So what, what is it that led Cain to do what he did? You know, I, th- I think when we feel unloved as people, sometimes we have a natural tendency to react in an unloving way. And I, and I wonder if that is something that happened with Cain. See, that's, that's the natural love in this world, right? That's the worldly love, that when you feel unloved, you respond in the same way that you feel, unloving. And we can justify our reasons for doing that, right? I mean, just forget Jesus' example. You know, you know, you did this to me, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna pay you back. I'm gonna do something back to you, and that's sort of that's what was happening with Cain, right? And so we got to remember, God calls us, what God calls us to is not to live naturally in the natural way that we have inherited from our first family, from our first relatives, Cain and Abel, right? From the, you know, in the way that he, the way that he just reacted in a natural way. So I, and I think a second interesting thing is this, when I look at the life of Cain and Abel, it's worth considering is that sometimes we try to pacify our behavior. We say, well, you know, like, it's like, you know, I think it's easy for Cain to say, well, you know what? It, it's just the way I feel, right? The environment has a lot to do with what we do, right? The society around us, right? Um, the way we grew, for us today, it's easy for us to, it's a lot easier for us to do that because we, you know, some of, some of you just, you grew up in unhealthy environments. And so it's easy to say, well, I grew up this way. And so that's the reason why I, I respond to things the way I respond to things. But when you look back at the story of Cain and Abel, I mean, there wasn't a lot of culture yet. I mean, they, they were the first, I mean, they came from the first parents. I mean, they, there wasn't a lot of bad culture going on. There wasn't any societal culture at that time. These were the first people on earth. And so what John is doing is he's using this story of Cain and Abel to sort of reveal something to us. And that is there is a nature that exists inside of all of us. It's not just out there somewhere. It's not in the environment. It's in here. There is a nature that exists in us because there was no cultural influence in their lives. And this is the first murder described in scripture. And so you just can't, you can't blame that murder on other things. You can't say, well, Cain was brought up wrong or Cain was, you know, uh, 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 it was, it, it's Cain from inside. So that's, I think we, we can't pacify our behavior. We have to look in within to, to, to find that. And the third thing is this, he made it about himself. We tend to make life all about us. We're really, really good at this one. All of us are. Our natural tendency 
again, thinking about the natural tendency, our natural tendency is to make ourselves the central focus. And in doing so, what happens is we end up using, whether we intentionally do it or not, we use people as tools and pawns to meet our desires. And this happens to us every day. And that results in pushing others down and, and harming other people to do things that we feel like we deserve. And we end up in, in doing so, we make ourselves be like, like, like God. And so looking at the story of Cain and Abel, you see, okay, so John is starting off this example of being a murderer, and he's comparing that to not loving. And he's saying that if we love, you know, if you want to see what righteousness looks like, it's love. And when we don't love, it's like we're murdering. It seems awfully odd to go to that extreme, but that's what John does. And then he spells it out for us. So he goes to that example, and then he starts to spell it out for us in verse 12. I think, I think John knows we're probably going to react like, okay, look, John, I'm no murderer, all right? I can't relate to this, so I, could, I don't need to, I, I, I don't need, this is, you're talking to somebody else here, right? I have never had an inclination to murder. Well, then John starts to tell us how our lives really do intersect with the personality of Cain and what he demonstrated in his life. In verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So we're not going to wonder that the world hates, right? The wonder, rather, is that is when God's people hate others. That's, that's what's coming. And so he says, don't be surprised when the world hates you, but rather what God calls us to do is to love deeply. Right? We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. Very simply, when you understand Jesus' love for you, your life should be to love in return, in, in, in response. The response of your life should be to love in return. So when the world and their natural love refuses to love you, someone who follows Jesus, that's not a mystery. Nothing to be surprised about there. The mystery, John says, the wonder, the surprise should be when you see someone who says they're a Christian and they fail or refuse to love in return. Because that's what Jesus did. That's the unnatural thing to do. And that's what God calls us to do. That's what it means to love deeply. You can't live for Jesus and the world at the same time. You can't respond supernaturally and naturally at the same time. You got to do one or the other. You're going to live for one or the other. And when you choose to live for the one, you're going to offend the other. You can't, you can't, you can't live for both. You can't offend both. You're going to offend one or the other. Choosing to live for Jesus, you know, knowing that Jesus is an offense to this world, he is. The way that the world actually sees Christ is how deeply you choose to love them in those moments when you're also offending them, right? And it's, it's, a, it's a crazy thing. It's a crazy thing that he says that, that in, all, in all things, the way that you're going to be able to show the righteousness of Christ in this world is through love. And look, I'm not saying this. Don't, don't mistake this. It, don't mistake this for meaning agree with everyone, because that's not at all what love is. I mean, that's, that's not how love is defined. In fact, that's impossible to do. In fact, that's not, it's impossible to love and agree with everything that people do. Just agreeing with something and everything is not love. That's just superficial concession, and it's dishonest. And dishonesty is perhaps the highest form of disrespect and disdain. And so to just say, well, I got to agree with everything, that's actually, that's actually not love. That's closer to hate. 
Love is different. The world and everything and everyone in it finds its identity in everything that they do and what they do. And when you don't embrace what they do, they hate you for it. But just because we don't accept what other people might do or say, it does not mean that we stop loving them. That's, that's, that's the thing we got to remember. Because Jesus did that for you. God doesn't accept what you do. He doesn't accept what you stand for naturally. But he loves you just the same. In verse 10, he laid it out like that, right? You know, that, that people go into this world, they claim to follow Jesus, but, but they look the opposite way. And in doing so, what do they resemble? They resemble the devil more than they resemble Christ. But even in that, Jesus continues to love us. And his love transforms our life. And he doesn't agree with what we do always, but Jesus still loves you. And ultimately, it's his love that transforms your life. It's not arguments that transform your life. It's his love that transforms your life. And so that's how, this, his, that's how the world is going to be transformed, through, through his love. The mystery isn't that the world hates you. That's not a mystery. That's not, that's not a surprise, John says. The mystery is the fact that God's followers would hate in response. That's the mystery, John says. So verse 14, we know that we have passed from death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. We love those. We, we love our brothers and sisters. We love. Whoever does not love, he says, abides in death. So love brings life. Jesus' love for us brought us life. That's what brought you life. It brought you out of darkness into light. It, he brings light into your life. Your love when it would make the most natural sense to respond in hate, choosing to love instead, your love will bring life to others. Verse 15. Let's keep moving on here. Everyone who hates his brother, now look at this. Here, here we go. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so now John finally digs into the reason that he gave his Cain example, right? So here's the reason why you relate to Cain, because it's not that you have actually murdered or that you feel like murdering or that you have an inclination to murder, but it's because what you have resting in your heart is the very seed that produces murder. I mean, Jesus said the same thing, did he not? In Matthew chapter 5, the religious leaders looked at in Jesus' day, they looked at, at the law that God had given, and they said, you know what, Jesus, we follow the law, we're good, right? I mean, we're, we're fine. I mean, we, we, we follow the law to the letter, right? We're better than good. I mean, we're the best of the law followers here. And then Jesus gives them an illustration, and he says this. He says, you've heard that it was said of those that old, that you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable of, of judgment, he says. But I say to you, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire, the fire of hell. So Jesus says the same thing that John's saying here. This issue of, of, of hate can indeed be compared to murder. 
In Matthew 5, he takes the law of the Old Testament and he really turns the temperatures up on, their, on, on the Pharisees here because you know these people were following what they thought was the Old Testament law and they thought they were keeping it all in their own eyes. Well, some of them, I mean, that thought that. And they thought that they were good. They thought that they were, you know, they were religious living people, right? But Jesus turns it around on them and they find that he's making us out to be the bad ones here. Right? They thought, well, no, we're good because we do this and this and that, and we don't do this and this and that. We don't do what other people do. We're good because we do these things. We're good because we stand over here. We're, we're good because that's who, and we're not them. And Jesus turns the temperature up and he says, no, look, it's not about keeping all those rules of conduct. It's about your heart. Jesus didn't come simply to give you a system of belief to live by. Jesus came to transform your life. That's why Jesus came. And if Jesus transforms your heart, what he's going to do is he'll change what you do. But the main focus is not on your conduct. Your main focus is not on morality. Those things are exterior. A lot of people believe that being a Christian means about doing, th- you know, living a set of standard of morality, and that's backwards. You will live that way, but your, the love of Christ has to transform your heart first. If you focus on the exterior things first and foremost, and you make those things primary, then what ends up happening is that those things will have a tendency to trample on and drown out the love that should be in your heart first. But when love is the main priority, when love is the main focus, then something amazing happens. Love goes deeper than morality. Love takes root. It's the seed that produces the conduct of our lives. Love is the seed that will ultimately produce the conduct in your life that God desires. Love is the seed that produces the righteousness that Christ requires. He gives it to you so that you have the ability to do it. It's a supernatural thing. And then he says, live this out among other people. When we demand conduct by itself from the world, we, we will not change the world. In fact, we'll create even greater hate. Demanding morality of the world will never change the world. That's why Jesus never taught us to demand morality from the world. He never taught us that. He, he, he never commissioned us to demand that the world behave like Christians. But rather, he commissioned Christians to love like he does. And in doing so, we just might see Christ-like love produced in others' behaviors. We just might see Christ-like love produce Christ-like behavior. We'll say it that way. And so John and Jesus, both using this example, John says that he who has hate has already murdered. And so what he's identifying here is that the only difference between me and Cain is, you know, the difference between you and Cain is that Cain did with his hands what you actually feel in your heart towards someone. And he makes no distinction. Get that, okay? Feel that. The reaction from Jesus when you hate another person is the same reaction that you might have when someone else has been murdered and you hear about it. That's the comparison that John is making here. When you think about what God calls us to in this passage of Scripture, I mean, it really begs the question for us to stop and consider, wow, do I love the way that God's Word calls me to love? I mean, what really rests in my heart? So John gives a a second example, and and then he sort of starts over in verse 16, and he shows us what this love should look like. And if we're wondering, okay, how do I do this? How do I love like Jesus, especially when I 
intensely and wholeheartedly disagree with the actions and the behavior and the conduct and the morality of the world. What does that love look like then, right? Well, he says this. He gives us an answer. By this, we know love. All right. That he, so he's talking about Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So just as Jesus laid down his life for us, he then becomes the example of this in our own lives. And then we are to emulate that by laying down our lives for others to help them become all that God has called them to be. And so once again, this is not a natural thing. This is supernatural. It's not going to be something that you naturally want to do. I mean, Jesus had, in fact, he had no reason to do this. It's not that he had to do this. There's no obligation in the life of Jesus to do this. But yet in his grace, he chooses to come to this earth and give his life. And he owed us nothing, but in a supernatural way, he loves. And now if you're a follower of Christ, that means Jesus continues loving in the same way. But he does it through you. He wants to keep loving the same way, and he wants to do it through every single person who calls himself a believer in Christ. So he offers a real hands-on example here in verse 17 as we move on. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Okay? So while we can distance ourselves from the example of murder and being a murderer like Cain, what John is saying now is that sometimes we just can't be indifferent to the needs of other people around us, right? Jesus wasn't this way. Jesus came and he gave it all. But in our own lives, we, it's really easy for us sometimes to have a tendency, a natural tendency, okay, to just be indifferent to the needs of, of others around us. And John says when that happens, it's an example of how God's love is basically not abiding in us. So the whole point of where John's beginning here is an assumption that, that we love God. That's, that's what he's assuming with, right? That's why I say he's writing to Christians. And so he's talking to us. He's talking to people who say they love God. He's speaking to, to the church, those who, were, you know, who go to church every week, right? Which would cause one to assume there's an understanding of what the heart of Christianity and being part of the church is all about. And John is saying what it is, is love. If we love God, he's saying, just consider in our lives how that is being made known. Does it look like the love of God? Or does it look like hate? Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So love is functional, okay? Indeed, it's not just something we talk about. It's not just something we write about. It's not just something we post memes about. It's functional. You gotta be lived out in some way, in deed and in truth. There's got to be something behind it that demonstrates the evidence of what you proclaim to believe in Christ. If there's no evidence of that kind of love with which Christ loved you, then the glaringly obvious question is, do you really belong to Christ? That's the question that we've got to ask ourselves. It's a tough question. So before we conclude, John does something more in verse 19. And as you look at what he said, and you consider what he said so far, maybe, you know, I think maybe he realizes that what he has said so far might cause a little conviction, right? Maybe a little guilt, right? I don't think, we don't want you to have guilt because, 
you know, guilt is, conviction's much healthier than guilt, right? There's a worldly guilt and there's a godly conviction. And conviction is like, you know what, you're right. My heart is is wrestling with this. John, you're right. I I want to talk with God about this and I want to walk with God in this. How do I turn this over to God? How do I make this better in my life? And so John takes you on this little journey in verse 19 and he says this, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Reassure your heart before him, okay? So what's he talking about this? By this we shall know. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about love. By this, right? By the love that you demonstrate in your life, then your heart is reassured that you're walking with God, that you're in truth with him. All right? So, so that's good, right? You want your heart reassured. We like assurances. It's a blessed thing, assurance. Saw what I did there. Assurance is blessed. So opportunities in your life where you're making love known, it has this effect of reassuring your heart that you're walking with Jesus. Think about that. Look for opportunities every single day to make love known because every time you do, you gain a little more assurance in your heart that you really are walking with Jesus, that it, it fuels you. Because the question is, what about those areas that I don't feel so much assurance, those areas that I might be convicted in? What do I do with those, right? Because there are times when I do feel assured, but then there are times when I don't feel so assured. So what do I do? Well, John continues in verse 20, and he says this, for whenever our heart condemns us, because we have these times when it feels like our heart is like, I'm not so sure. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So what does that mean? I think he's saying, look, we know, I know it's going to happen. Even when your heart condemns you, that's not what matters. So when you feel like in your heart that you're, you're, you're condemning yourself, what matters is what God says, not what your heart feels in that moment. So all of human history is going to this place where one day you're going to meet God face to face. You're going to meet the one who knows everything face to face. He sees everything. And there is nothing in your heart that's hidden from God. And then he says in verse 21, okay, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. That's good. That's good and dandy, right? We, we like that. If your heart doesn't condemn you, then you have confidence before God. But what if you are feeling condemned? How do you get that confidence, right? And I think what John is wanting us to, to derive from this is that we don't want our hearts to be condemned and that we do want to have confidence before God. And so verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Here we are again talking about commandments, right? So what are those commandments? How long is that list, right? What does it mean to keep his commandments? Well, John gives us the list. Here's the long list. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Verse 23, and this is his commandment. All right, get ready. Here's the long list. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as, he's, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We've heard this before, haven't we? Right? I mean, it's written a little differently in other scriptures, but what John is saying is essentially the same thing as what we see in other parts of the scripture, what Jesus said when he was asked about the greatest commandment, you know, what's the greatest commandment we're to obey? We, we know the answer to that, right? 
to love God and love others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. But here, when John talks about it, he says it just a little differently, doesn't he? He says, you know, you know, and maybe there's a reason why he says it different. Maybe the reason why he says it different is because he wants us to understand how we don't walk in condemnation, but how we can have confidence before the Lord, right? And that confidence comes in the way or in how we really love in the way that God has called us to love. That's how you gain more confidence is that you, you're loving other people the way God wants you to love other people. And the more you do that, the more confidence you gain. And so rather than saying, love God and love others, John says, believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commands us. So rather than love and love, the way Jesus said it, John says, it's believe and love. Believe and love. So if you read this section of scripture and you ponder this section that we've talked about today and your heart is feeling a little guilty about not loving the way God loves other people, but you want to love with supernatural love, how does that happen? He says it like this, believe him, believe him. And in this world, this word for, for believe literally means this, put all of your weight into this, confidently rest in this, just rest yourself in this. Why does John say that rather than, than love God? Why does he say believe in God? Well, if you think about the examples that John gave us, you know, in the passage that we read today, uh, the individual who murders and the, the description of a person that might be indifferent to the needs of other people, what do those people believe in? What, what they believe in, what they have in common, and what they believe in is themselves. That's, that's where, that's where they, they put the, the, the weight of their, the majority of their belief. It's, it's in themselves, Right? What they think is most important is what they want, meeting their needs. And it's impossible to love with godly, supernatural love when what you believe in most is yourself. When what you live for most is yourself. So if you want confidence, if you want confidence in deep in your soul, assurance, the answer is not, well, just try harder love harder, the answer is die to yourself. Die to this idea of living for yourself. Because the problem we have is trusting in ourselves. But what Jesus wants to do in you is to give you this love that does not come natural. If you don't understand it, it's because you're trying to understand it in the way that the world understands love. And we're never going to understand it that way. To be able to love in moments where you're just your natural self, in your natural self, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. The way that that kind of love happens through us begins by truly believing in the name of Jesus. And if you find that kind of love difficult to make real in your life, then you, get, you have to ask yourself the question, do I truly believe See, John equates loving in this way with belief. And he says the way that righteousness is, is revealed in your life is when we love this way. And so come to grips with that today. Believe and love. Believe and love. 
Why don't we pray together and then we'll respond to God in, in worship. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to pray and after I pray, we're going we're gonna to sing another song. We're actually going to sing two more songs. And as we sing this, this song, if you have communion prepared at your house, um, participate in it together or wherever you, you might be and recognize that where you have fallen short, there is grace that comes from Christ to pick you up and get you walking again in the love that God desires for you to walk in. And, and we are reminded that that grace is available to us whenever we take the cup that represents the blood that Christ shed on the cross, on the cross and the, the bread that uh, represents the, the brokenness of his body that he shared with his, uh, his disciples before he went to the cross. And he said, remember, remember this, because this is where your life comes from. This is where the kind of love that I want you to love the world with is, is, is able to come from. It comes from, from this act that I'm performing for you um, to remove the, the, uh, the guilt of sin from your life, to remove the wrath of God against you, and to make you instead a child of God. So let's pray, and then we'll respond to Him in worship, and let your heart respond um, in whatever way God's calling you to respond today. Well, Lord, we come to you with um, maybe convicted hearts, maybe a heart that says, I'm not sure that I, that I love the way that John has described to the church. Maybe we've seen and heard the words that John has, has said, and, and we thought to ourselves, um, I, I, might, I might be guilty here. I might be convicted here. I'm not so sure. And Lord, we need assurance. And the way that we gain that assurance, Father, is to yield more and more to you, not to try harder. And so right now, God, we hand over to you those areas in our lives that are stubborn, those areas that we're trying to, to live naturally. Because we're never going to love the world naturally. We're never going to love the way that you want us to love others naturally. It's got to be something that you give us that breaks through the natural. It's supernatural. And so, Father, may we yield to that today more and more as we consider your word and sing in Jesus' name.